suppose we're waiting for, there they are. Okay, good. They just walked right past. But we're all waiting for the Tom Sue. We're all, we're all here for the quantum physics lecture, right? Everyone's here for that? Okay, very good. Um, so as soon as they come back in, they just walk that way, and they're wandering, it seems, back this way. Here's the thing you can do for me, though. Would you please, if you have questions that you would like to pose to Tom, or we're going to have uh, members of the Detroit cultural community here as well. Yes, yes, y'all. Um, if you have those questions, would you do me a favor and go ahead and, and use the hashtag and tweet the questions uh, to me, and then I'll field them and help get... Th- come on, y'all. I'm, I'm up here killing time at this point. Yeah, come on. Come on. There you go. All right, so I'll, I'll let you guys start at this point, but I am saying if you have some specific questions you'd like answered um, and you want to put them up uh, with the hashtag ASLHMMA2016, I'll be following them and feeding some questions this way. The most important thing is, by the way, for all of you, is you're on microphone when you talk. Oh, Juanita didn't hear me. I knew that was Juanita, too, but she doesn't have a badge on. It's in my bag. I, 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 that's why I wanted to say hi. And I was like, maybe, okay, so y'all have to, so maybe you, you have to stay on microphone. We're recording this for posterity. Okay. Everybody's got to be on microphone. This will go down on a permanent record. Yes, it will go down. What's the time frame? All right, so I expect lots of questions. When do we have? And we go till three, Rob, right? The session goes till three? Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, for joining us. Sorry for the delay. We had to get the talent some food. Um, we didn't want to pass out. How many of you were at the uh, keynote session? Okay, good. So we don't, we, we, we don't need it. We can build on that. That was really the hope uh, for this. When we talked about planning this, um, this follow-up right after the keynote, we, wanted, we knew that we would be able to get into hopefully some thought-provoking conversations. I'm going to – how are you doing? Can you hear me back there? All right. Um, I'm uh, David Jansen. I'm uh, program chair uh, for this year's meeting, and, um, and uh, but I make my money working at Bruce Moore in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, I'm here really to kind of set the table. We want to hear from you. We want to generate a discussion based largely on what Dr. Sugru talked about in the keynote. Um, there's a Detroit specificity to that message, but there is also uh, there are also ramifications for. Um, history beyond Detroit's borders, and I, I believe ramifications for uh, our field in general in terms of how we use history, how we share history, to whom do we present our history. And those are the issues that uh, we'd like to get into today with, with, uh, with your help. That really was the basis of the theme for this year's conference, based on Detroit's really centuries-long um, story of rebuilding itself, re, um, uh, redefining itself, uh, and knowing, as, as Dr. Sugru pointed, pointed out in his talk, that it is at a pivotal moment right now. Um, are we at that same moment? Demographically in the United States, are we at that moment? Are we at that moment in our profession uh, where um, information and, and data like that which we heard in the keynote uh, are, are used effectively in, in the discourse and used effectively in the conversations that we have about, about how we choose our way forward. So I want to d- d- begin then by uh, allowing everyone to introduce themselves. We, since you, you were all at the session, I will um, 
pass over Dr. Sugru for, the, for this purpose, but I'd like to have both of our panelists, actually, if we could both, if you could introduce yourselves uh, and uh, your institutions, that would be wonderful. My name is Juanita Moore. I'm the president and CEO of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. And I, uh, I'm Toby Voigt. I am the Senior Director of Education and Outreach for the Detroit Historical Society. The, we set this panel up. We wanted to uh, certainly move the discussion from Detroit uh, to the profession and Detroit to, to bigger questions. But what I'd like to begin with, and I'm going to put Toby on the spot first, give Juanita time to think, um, because uh, I, know, um, I, know, I know if Toby gets mad at me, um, I can take, you know... Um, I'd like you to talk about what you're planning and uh, how you use uh, the history and the stories, um, not specifically and or limited to Dr. Sugru, but how do you use uh, Detroit's past in, in how you reach your audiences? All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Again, I represent the Detroit Historical Society, and I know many of you were at the Detroit Historical Museum uh, yesterday night, and that's uh, we operate that museum, and a Great Lakes Maritime History Museum on Belle Isle. So um, my, my thoughts on how we are uh, incorporating specifically the history that Dr. Sagru talked about today is... I, in thinking about how he presented today, talking first about what the mainstream narrative has been about Detroit and Detroit's history, um, you know, I, I represent an organization that was founded in 1921 by predominantly white business mo folks in Detroit with the intention of preserving um, Americana and Detroit's history, which, um, through no fault of anybody, ended up being predominantly white dominant cultural perspectives. And that's, as an organization, in many ways, we embodied um, kind of this, this mainstream narrative that uh, Dr. Sagru had mentioned and then broke down. And I'd say the Detroit Historical Society is parale paralleling kind of that story from moving from an institution um, that celebrated industry and white advances to kind of breaking that down and really starting to not be afraid. Um, as a Detroiter, I was so excited about him, you know, basically airing our dirty laundry today, um, which is not always, that stuff makes you uncomfortable, but uh, it's exactly what we're trying to do now uh, at the Detroit Historical Society. We're embarking on a very large-scale, multi-year community engagement project for the commemoration of the upcoming uh, 50th anniversary of the 1967 rebellion, uprising, riot. It has all those terms. And using that as a vehicle to kind of dig deeper into the history. We're going to be talking about the 300-year history of the struggles that Dr. Tom Segru um, mentioned in his talk. So we're at the beginning phases of this work, and uh, it's exciting. It can be uncomfortable, but we, it's absolutely necessary for us to make, remain re relevant in our community and sustainable as an organization as we move forward. Um, I, I was, as I was, as Toby was talking, I was sitting here and I thought, um, the, because I, I thought, oh my God, you can't be the bad person. Um, because the first thing I thought when she said, um, to no fault of anybody's, it has to be somebody's fault. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, it, it, I mean, it's, there's an intentionality to it. That's my point. That so I, I think that when we start with like there's no to no nobody's fault there is some intentionality to it so 
Um, but I think that, um, f as Toby is, is, is absolutely correct, the, the whole 50th anniversary of the 67 Rebellion gives all of us an opportunity, presents an amazing opportunity for all of us to really look at Detroit in a way, uh, um, in totality and together, because there's this incredible partnership that has come out of this in a way that probably, I, I've only been here 10 years, so I can't say that hasn't happened ever before, but in, in my time of being here, it, there's never even been a discussion of the layers of partnership that is happening around 67. Um, it, just, it's just not. So I think that it is, it is such an amazing time and a great opportunity and perfect that Tom's book and, and is, is, is available to us and that he has written this book because it does allow for um, all kinds of organizations to really look at the, the 67 Rebellion, the 50th anniversary, and Detroit in a way that they probably would not have without the book and, um, and, and, and or at least have a lot more discussions about the, the reality of, 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 this, of this information without the book. So I, I first want to thank you for, for, for doing that. And um, the museum, fortunately, the, the Charles H. Wright Museum, just it was sort of has been, as many African-American museums, have been born out of the, the need to have those kinds of conversations, the fact because they didn't exist, and, and to explore that history and to tell that story. Um, and uh, all over the country as, you know, as is being discussed in Detroit. So that has been really part of the, the whole evolution and, and the existence of this institution. Um, and the, the kind of programming um, that has evolved from this has just been amazing. I'll just give you a really quick example. This past Saturday, as part of our 67 program, we had a program on General Baker. General Baker was a labor leader, an African-American labor leader, and someone who's been, for many years, very, very involved in, in race relations in, 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 in this community. Um, I was in my office and I went down, the program started about three o'clock, and I said, let me go downstairs and see if there's, it's on a Saturday afternoon, is there anybody showing up for this program? And I get down there, and the theater is full. It holds about 315 people. It is absolutely filled. There is no place to sit. I'm looking for, around for a place to sit. But also in the room, it's about 40% white people, elderly white people. Um, and they were all, um, you know, like, you know, everybody's listening and talking. And, and some of the stuff can be really pretty radical. And there was a, 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 one of the, the speakers on the stage was also an, uh, an elderly white man. And he said, can you believe that they're doing a film? The woman that did Hurt Locker is doing a film on 67, Detroit 67. And people were like, oh. Then he said, and they're filming it in Boston. Walkers <laughs> start to shake and people start to. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have an elderly riot. And, um, <laughs> But it was, it was really amazing. The passion and the, the conversation was, you know, was very, very strong and rich. And how people talked about Detroit in a way that you talked about Detroit. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and it, that, I think that is, that is important and is happening. Um, and so, you know, that's not, that's not the look of many of our programs. I'm just gonna be frank. 
Uh, but that audience, when I, I was very, very surprised, and um, and the conversation was was rich. It was strong. It was honest. People were, uh, you know, they they didn't hold back, and they didn't always agree. But it was absolutely fabulous. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that can happen. I think it would be even. It's going to be even better for it. The n last thing I will say is that, um, you know, with all the discussion about the 67 Rebellion coming up, we were at the Holocaust Museum one day talking about another program, and, you know, we said we're doing the 67 Rebellion, and there, when the Jewish women go, uh, she went, hmm. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> so she said, Rebellion, we call it a, a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I thought, that's interesting, why? And so she started to talk about the fact that, you know, her family had a business and it was very much in the area uh, and that it was destroyed and many of the Jewish families' businesses were destroyed and they felt like they had been very, um, you know, very much a part of the community and had been fair people and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, we will be having a discussion with her and a number of other people about that, um, the, 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 the Rip Rapson, who's the president of Kresge Foundation, his administrative assistant is one of those people who feel the exact same way. Um, Marsha Simmel, which some of you may know Marsha Simmel, is also from Detroit. Her parents had uh, a, a business in, that, in the community, and she, when I talked to her several weeks ago, was saying, you know, it was very interesting, the title Rebellion, and. So um, that, that conversation we will have. But I think that what will be most importantly is that we will be requiring that they read Tom Segrew's book um, as part of that discussion. So uh, I think that there are lots of ways that, you know, that that history is really playing on a very important part in the work that, that all of us are doing. I want to follow up on that. I want to follow up on that, that statement. I'm gonna maybe um, in a second, because I'm going to give you both a chance. Um, Dr. Sugru, there are elements of Detroit's story that is absolutely unique to its history, its, its region, its people. There are elements of Detroit's story that are applicable to other stories. Can you talk a little bit about how you think um, your, the, the work that we're talking about now, but Detroit's story in particular, what are the implications or what are the lessons that other cities and other um, communities uh, can, can learn or should learn from that? Uh, that's a good question. So um, I, I tell my students that there are two types of historians. There are lumpers and splitters, right? Some of you have probably heard this metaphor before, lumpers. We look for commonality. We look for the big picture. Splitters are, we split everything into its small, tiny differences, right? So a lumper would say, well, to think about Detroit means thinking about Cleveland, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, um, Philadelphia, Newark, Boston, uh, et cetera. And a splitter would say, each one of those cities has a, its own very distinctive trajectory, its own distinctive built environment. We really can't consider them all together. Um, I would make a case that um, as historians, writing history as historians, um, doing it through museums, doing it through uh, historic houses. We have to think about both at the same time. We have to think about what makes um, our place distinctive, but that's in some ways is easy to do. Um, if we want to have a wider reach, if we want to speak to major issues, we have to think about commonalities. And 
Um, as I've studied other cities, and as many of other, other historians after I published Origins of the Urban Crisis have gone off and written books on Oakland or Charlotte or uh, uh, you know, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, places really different from Detroit, what struck me is the number of commonalities that these places have. So our experiences are distinctive to our cities and to our regions, but we need to think more broadly. And so I, I thought about this around the Detroit 67 project. Um, about, uh, well, 10 years ago, almost, uh, I was I interviewed um, all over the place about the 40th anniversary of the 1960s uprisings. And when it came to Detroit, one of the most common reactions I heard in, in questions and in interviews was, why do we want to bring back this painful experience? Why do we want to tell that history? Shouldn't we just move past it? Shouldn't it, we transcend it? Shouldn't we move beyond it? Um, and I, I raised the counter question, well, how can it be that one of the most defining events in the history of the city is unmarked? There's not a, or wasn't, I don't think there still is, a historical marker um, on 12th Street where on July 23rd, 1967, police raided a blind pig in a legal after-hours bar, um, sparking what would become the 1967 uprising. Um, and, the, and, and the answer is sometimes parts of our past are too troubling, too painful, too unsettling, um, too contentious uh, for us to, to, to want to bring them back. But thinking about what other cities have been doing, that, that very year, the New Jersey Historical Society in Newark did a display and a series of public events on Newark 67, the second largest uprising in the, summer, the long, hot summer of 1967. And they did it quite brilliantly. They had um, exhibits, they had interactive exhibits, they had police uniforms, they had photographs, they had um, uh, letters and testimonies. But perhaps most powerfully, they had oral histories with people who, who broke windows and looted stores, with police officers, with shopkeepers, with community organizers, with ministers, with African-Americans who uh, supported those who, were, um, who it took to the streets, with African-Americans who called for law and order and opposed them, right? They, they basically said, there are a lot of voices here, and our job as a historical society is to bring all those voices to the table and let them be heard, and to understand this as a multifaceted moment in the city's past, and it was very powerful. Um, it was a really a superb exhibit overall. But, it's, but this goes back, moving back to your question, we in Detroit have learned from what happened in Newark um, and, and really folks now thinking about um, another topic that's near and dear to my heart, the history of civil rights outside the South. Um, I wrote a book on the civil rights struggle uh, called Sweet Land of Liberty, the Civil Rights in the North. And I discovered there's an extraordinary history of grassroots civil rights activism in every major northern city, including the General Bakers, uh, including uh, folks who sat in at segregated housing projects in New York in the 1940s, including people who uh, uh, sat in at restaurants to protest Jim Crow in Chicago and Cleveland, uh, and who had sit-ins and, sw and swim-ins at swimming pools and protests at amusement parks. And, and this is a history that that has regional or local variation, but actually reminds us that the struggle for civil rights is not just a Montgomery, Greensboro, Birmingham, Selma story. It's not just a Southern story. It's an American story. And so I guess that's where my lumper sensibilities come mm -hmm. together. We need to think about commonalities across the very distinctive places we work at. And when we do, we have aha moments. We see what maybe we hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to uh, one of the some of the questions that have come in from the from the uh, the audience. Um, I'm going to ask a few of those as well as we go through. And this isn't into anyone in particular. What is the uh, role? What role did the uh, churches play in segregation, desegregation, and in the transformation of Detroit? I will let anyone who wants to grab the microphone jump on that first. Yeah. Um. Churches are incredibly heterogeneous uh, institutions. Um, some were active in, in um, supporting and perpetuating racial segregation. Others were on the front end, front uh, cutting edge of challenging it. Um, I can just give you some specific examples and say there are many more. Um, in, in Detroit, as in most major cities, um, Roman Catholics were a very sizable segment of the population, of the white population in particular. Um, Roman Catholic parishes are territorial, right? So a Catholic parish has a boundary, a visible line, and, and everybody knows where that boundary is. We're in a parish right now, we're sitting in one. And if we cross that invisible line, we're in another parish. Uh, and so people identified by their parish, um, and they identified by their race. Uh, and often in cha racially changing Detroit neighborhoods in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Catholic churches with pastors who uh, were supportive of their, their congregation resisted the movement of African Americans in because they worried that their parish would be changed fundamentally. They worried that the way that they defined where they lived, their neighborhood, their place uh, would be undermined or threatened. And so when I found 200 plus neighborhood associations that were designed mostly to keep blacks out of white neighborhoods, a lot of them met in church basements or in church and parish halls. Um, some Catholic churches were on the cutting edge of challenging segregation. They often tended to be African-American Catholic churches because there were separate black parishes in many cities. Um, other religious congregations, um, again, they varied. Jewish congregations often had members and rabbis um, and lay leadership who were really committed to the goals of civil rights, um, and many of them actively joined forces with other civil rights organizations and groups but they were often the first to pick up and leave racially changing neighborhoods, sometimes at the very beginning of the process of racial change, leading their membership to pick up and leave. So they supported the idea of civil rights, but they hit the road pretty fast, right? So what you professed and how you acted didn't always come, you know, go hand in hand. Likewise, many Protestant congregations in Detroit um, picked up and moved uh, when their uh, membership began to change as African Americans began to move in. So if you go around Detroit right now, or really any big city, you will see in the built environment, in the architecture of the cities, evidence of religious and racial transformation going hand in hand. Um, every major city has um, uh, Jewish synagogues, shuls, that have been converted into African American churches. You'll see around Detroit and in big cities, Catholic churches, many of them huge, many of them built by immigrants uh, in the 19th, early 20th century, that are now just standing there empty, abandoned. Uh, um, you see former uh, Protestant churches that were a member of one congregation, they're now Protestant churches of another congregation. You see former Protestant churches that are now mosques. Uh, they're reflecting the growth in, in um, religious denominations that were underrepresented in the city before. And so, um, a really cool way of thinking about the transformation of cities is to, um, is to look at the ways in which religious institutions are both reflecting and are agents of those changes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, 
I'd like to ask now from the museum's perspective, both Ms. Moore and Ms. Voigt, if you can speak to your institutions and the audiences you serve, how you serve them, whom you serve and whom you would like to serve. I know that for the, and you might uh, be able to explore a little bit, Charles Wright Museum has a really a broader mission than, than being a history museum, uh, and, and the, which is sort of a fascinating story in and of itself. But I'd like to explore a little bit in the next few minutes the people who are hearing your stories, because I, later on I'd like to explore the idea of are, is, are, the, are the people who need to hear the stories hearing them? Are they, are they getting the facts um, that they need to get? Um, well, actually, you know, the, the fact that you say that the Charles Rice Museum's mission is broader than a history museum, I, I don't know that that's because of, that was the founder's, um, you know, wish. It, it, it wasn't. Dr. Wright didn't want to do art. Dr. Wright, he only wanted to do history. But it, I think it's a necessity of, of any African-American museum. There's usually only one. And so if you don't do art and you don't do culture and you don't be, you know, a place for community gathering, there really isn't one. So the Charles Wright Museum, like almost every other African-American museum I know, um, except for um, probably the new museum in D.C., it has the, the, it will be like a Smithsonian institution um, that, you know, that you don't have a choice but to do those things. And so we do a lot of all of it. And, but I think we're stronger for it, honestly. And, and, and I think that it allows us to have a much more significant impact in the community that we serve and the community at large. And of course, you want to serve everybody. Because as Tom actually pointed out, that the, you know, the civil rights movement was an American movement, and so is African-American history. It is American history. So um, we do, you know, we, we, we really strive to, to, to make sure that we are really serving everybody because we want everyone to come in and, and, and hear the story and understand the history. So we do a lot of things that bring in different people to the museum so that they can then see our core exhibit in Still We Rise, which is a, an exhibition that takes you from prehistoric Africa to modern day Detroit. For example, we did um, last, uh, this past spring, we did an exhibition um, on Aboriginal art, which is an amazing, beautiful, beautiful show. And believe it or not, there was a spike in our attendance uh, in tracking the attendance. But we also know that the people that came in to see that show, they saw the entire museum because you don't want to waste your money. You want to see everything while you're there. And so um, we, we, we do work to make sure that we are looking at how we can broaden the audience over and over again and, and, and also um, have the, not just the African-American community, but the, 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 the community at large understand the importance of knowing the entire story, uh, not just of Detroit, but of American history as well. So we do that through a variety of ways. And uh, when we think about the story, the, the partnership of the 67, uh, Detroit 67, which the historical um, museum is doing a huge, huge part with a ton of partners, and we're among them, the, they're doing the history exhibit. We're not. Actually, we're doing an art exhibit. Um, and our exhibit really um, looks at how artists across the country, you mentioned Newark, there were any number of rebellions going on around the country. And I think it is important for people in Detroit, especially to understand um, exactly what was happening, that this entire country was in turmoil, and the reasons why 
it was in turmoil because those same, many of those are reflected in what was going on in Detroit. So um, we're doing an art exhibition and having artists um, look at, we're using the art to show, uh, give the voices of artists and what they saw was happening in this country in 67 but also bringing in some more contemporary artists to look at how that parallels with uh, Black Lives Matter. So, um, so that we can get the millennials to start to see it in totality and get to start to understand, have discussions and conversations about it. Um, you, they're also, Toby, Toby can speak for herself, but they're doing a lot of oral histories. They've been doing them for how many years? Year and a half. Year and a half, they've been doing a ton of oral histories so that they can have the same kind of uh, situation and story in, in their exhibition that Tom talked about in Newark. And, um, but as partners, we will all be using some of those um, oral histories because we will do, outside of the museum, we will do larger images of before and after neighborhoods, but uh, allow people to be able to use their, I'm not technology, that QRV, some QR codes, QR codes to, to hear some of the oral histories. And so you can hear what people thought about the neighborhoods before and after and, and some of those same mix of voices um, that we, and then we will have like a memory fence where, you know, instead of having people, when, when we start to talk about the concept of memory fence, the curators immediately go like, no teddy bears, no, no. <laughs> but what we would do is have like a number of cards, like, you know, think of them like luggage tags is how I explain them, mm -hmm. so that you can write your comments um, and then we would take them off and replace them so often so people can continue to come and give their comments based upon the images that they see and the oral histories that they hear. <clears throat> so, um, you know, it, we're, we're really looking for all kinds of opportunities to continue to be able to use the museum to include as many voices and as many people as we can. Thank you. Thank you, Juanita. Um, so, Talking, and talking a little bit about the history of the Detroit Historical Society, and in particular, the Detroit Historical Museum, uh, my disclaimer before I start is, although I was born and raised in the northern suburbs, uh, in the red dot portion of our uh, you know, map, uh, and I've, I've been at the Detroit Historical for Society for six years, um, by no means am I an expert on the um, organization's history, but I will share with you some of my um, thoughts, having worked there for six years. And um, my general thoughts on the progression of the society has been, you know, we were founded, as I mentioned earlier, by, you know, white elite business industrial folks. I can't speak to their intentions, you know, direct intentions or indirect, you know, structural intentions. But when I came to the society, it was very clear and I learned very quickly that we were considered within the community the white people's museum. And the Charles Wright Museum was the museum for the community. Um, that being said, I was really surprised when I first started as how many Detroit residents actually visited the museum. And that gave me pause because I walked through the galleries and said, they don't see themselves in our exhibits. Now, um, those of you who, the Detroit Historical Society is on a progression right now. Um, and we still have that problem in our museum. We just did a $12 million renovation in 2012, which was um, incredibly powerful for us to go through this transformative experience. But, um, and it was part of our progression to being a more inclusive organization. Those of you who were there last night still see there's not very much diversity in our exhibitions. 
we had to start the 67 project to really see that and understand that. So um, the origin as a history museum, and, and, and I say this openly, and, I, and I'm, you know, as a lumper, I can guarantee that 95% of city history museums have the same origin story as ours and are struggling with the same issues of being actually representative of your community. So we knew about five years ago that this big 50th anniversary was coming up. And as the historical museum for the city of Detroit, we knew we had to do an exhibition. And our nice, at the time, pretty much all white staff got together in a room and fortunately, somebody, I don't remember who it was, had the foresight to ask, who are we to tell this story by ourselves? So the idea of doing this exhibition suddenly got a lot bigger because we said we need to be more inclusive. We need to bring more people in the community. So, of course, we approached uh, Juanita and the Wright Museum being our neighbors and um, our friends. But I think it is safe to say that this is the first time our two organizations have collaborated in the history of either of our organizations. But... Uh, yeah, you know, we're both relative newbies, so if you are a Detroit expert and you know otherwise, please correct me afterwards. But um, so, um, so basically, we started this project two years ago, knowing that it was going to take us at least a year to start going out and building trust within the community just that live in the city of Detroit, and just to start. Right? So we decided to start with an oral history project, um, mainly from, you know, we've got a lot of scholarship that's been written about what happened in 67 from a white dominant cultural perspective. And there are a lot of people in this city who had significant experiences that were never asked to tell their story. Through that experience, it, starting that project, I started my personal transformation as a, a you know, white suburbanite into um, understanding a little bit more about what it takes to be truly diverse and inclusive in the society. And then, so we started that, but then we also started reaching out to community partners. And uh, we have to date at least 80 different cultural, social justice, uh, I don't know, just tons of different organizations that we're partnering with to help us give us the strength where we don't have it internally. And it's the only way we can do this project. And it's funny because we still, I, I personally didn't attend, I didn't make it to the General Baker thing, but I know at one point somebody in the audience uh, called out and said, what gives the Detroit Historical Society the right to tell this story? And about two years ago, that would have freaked me out. But when I heard that, I was like, good for her for asking, right? Because who am I to tell this story? I'm not, I can't do that. We need to work with the community. So we have a team of us, uh, scholars, because we are also like most history museums these days, um, the business model of having PhD curators on your history museum staff are like pretty much extinct. Now we have to like move chairs and do programs. I mean, we don't have that expertise in-house anymore. So we work with folks like Dr. Sagru here to help us get the historical context, people who are doing the great research and un you know, airing the dirty laundry that we need to air. Um, and we also have a very active community um, advisory committee that we selected people who are known for activists for their particular community that they identify with that are helping us say if you say that that way you're gonna you know no just don't do it that way and we're like oh okay good idea you know, helping us under know what we don't know and um, I will say we're finally at the point now where we're really uh, you know it's been uncomfortable but we're we're embracing it and we are learning and we're growing so in addition to doing this project outward focused with the community um, embracing arts and cultural projects of all different kinds, um, it's helping us grow internally as an organization. And that was one of our 
symbiotic goals. So we had the goal of doing this outward-facing community project, but we also have this goal of doing substantial organizational, institutional change. You know, we, we can't just be a white suburbanite staff anymore if we want to be relevant to our community, and we need to embrace authentic voices of all different kinds. So we are making concerted efforts as we move forward with this outward project to make the systematic change that we need to make in our organization. So I, I think... I want to riff off of the last two points just for a moment. Um, when I wrote my history of civil rights in the North, Sweet Land of Liberty, I figured I was going to write about New York and Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia. But I ended up writing about lots of places that I could never have dreamed of writing about. Um, Montclair, New Jersey, Hillsboro, Ohio, uh, Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, uh, I can just give you, I can go out and give you a, a litany of all the places I ended up um, finding interesting material on which reminds me that the questions that we're talking about here, Detroit-specific, are relevant to nearly every place where you have, where you work in historical museums or historical societies or have historic houses. Um, or maybe to put it a different way, the summer that Detroit burned in Ju July 1967, there were 163 uprisings around the United States, 163. I, am, I, can, I can lay money on the fact that three-quarters of you in this room had some kind of something ranging from a protest to an all-out rebellion happening on the streets of your town. Wadesboro, North Carolina, Des Moines, Iowa, Englewood, New Jersey, uh, Nyack, New York. I mean, all these little places that most of you never even heard of, right? Um, in other words, in each community, there is almost definitely a forgotten, ignored, marginalized history um, that needs to be recovered. I, 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 was, I gave a speaking gig at Albion College in Albion, Michigan. And who did I meet at my talk but someone from Albion who was involved in the effort in the early 1950s to desegregate the Albion public schools. Cool. Who had ever heard of that? A newspaper article once on an anniversary. That's pretty much it, right? There are those kinds of stories everywhere. And they will make for amazing museum exhibits, um, public history engagements and so forth. Um, just two other specific examples that I've been involved in. I, I, actually, I should say for full disclosure that I'm on the advisory board for Detroit 67, and I was on the team of historians before uh, Juanita was at the Charles Wright Museum who gave advice on the core exhibit and how it should be um, reinvigorated. Um, but I was involved um, with the Montclair, New Jersey Historical Society, which has a little historic house, a colonial era house in suburban New York and in, in, in northern New Jersey. Um, and Montclair has, had a, has a really interesting civil rights history, a long African-American community, and a black YWCA. Um, and they decided, as a way of reaching out to that very diverse community, that it's time to stop talking about our colonial house all the time and uh, start talking about the African-American history of Montclair. And so they brought me in to do this, to advise them on this project on the black Y, which was really rich and interesting. Um, the other, in Philadelphia, where I've spent most of my adult life, um, and some of you may know Dave Young and know the folks who are involved in um, various projects in historic Germantown. Historic Germantown celebrates its magnificent early American architecture, its plethora of house museums. It's a mind-blowing place. Um, Cliveden, the, the, it's part of the National Trust, um, it was the Chu family's estate from the colonial period. There was a battle of the Revolutionary War that was fought on its grounds. Um, it's, it's, it's major. The Chu family finally moved out, I think, around 1970 or so. Their family 
um, made much of its wealth by owning slaves. Today, Cliveden's in a mostly African-American neighborhood. The slave history of Cliveden um, was not part of how it was curated, how it was displayed, how it engaged the community, and they decided to really pull that out and to highlight that dimension of their history. In the process, taking what is a stodgy colonial old white people's house with folks dressed up as Revolutionary War reenactors and turning it into um, uh, something that spoke to the majority of residents of that community. Um, they brought in civil rights scholars. They brought in African-American activists. Germantown, as it turns out, has a history in the 20th century that's just as important uh, as it was in the 19th century. The Revolutionary Action Movement, a black power organization, one of its leaders lived in Germantown. Sonia Sanchez, the famous uh, uh, black feminist poet, lived in Germantown. Sun Ra and his orchestra, uh, uh, the, bla the black kind of Afro-futurist uh, surreal music group was based in Germantown. These should all be part, and can I think be part, of the vast majority of the public histories, displays, uh, museums, houses, et cetera, that, that many of you are involved in as well. Which leads me to a nicely connected question. How, how can museums bridge the gap, in this particular instance, between the two Detroits? The questioner is asking specifically neighborhoods versus downtown. I think there's also city proper versus suburbs, but how, does, how do museums bridge those gaps? How do you bring people together? How can we? How should we? Um, well, I, I think it's already happening, and I think we do it in, in a variety of ways. I think part, the, the partnerships that we do in terms of our programming is one, uh, not just with each other, but with a range of all kinds of organizations that are doing programming. I think that, um, you know, we all do programs out in the community, and and like, for example, we do, um, there is a, a program called, um, uh, there is several, uh, two of them. Noel Knight, for one thing, is, um, is, a, is a program that's done, it's uh, the first Saturday in December. Every museum, every art gallery, now every church, every um, um, businesses in Midtown all participate. You know, it can be three feet of snow, and people will have their children in their strollers pushing them out for Noel night. It is all over the, and when I first came, it was just basically the museums and maybe a gallery or two, but now everybody's doing Noel night, and it's all cultural programming um, that, that happens every single year. We, there's um, uh, the, 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 um, Arab American Museum spearheads uh, a, a sort of concert series called Concert of Colors. And when I first came to Detroit 10 years ago, Concert of Colors was uh, the Arab American Museum partnered with the, the DSO and they did it and they had a, a night over at the DIA. Now, um, the, we open uh, on Thursday night, there's the Scarab Club, which is right there that uh, that, that does a concert that starts like a half an hour after hours. Um, the DIA, the, uh, the, the neighborhood organization. I mean, there's like probably an additional 50 more partners in this program, this whole weekend concert that people come uh, to through, you know, in, in the city. Um, we have this, you know, a number of sort of this thing called electricity. Electricity is uh, sort of a, a light show, but it's artists creating 
um, all kinds of exhibitions, and it goes from everything to amazing artists creating exhibitions to uh, a dancer. Uh, there's a, this dance called the Jit in Detroit that um, you know he did an incredible light piece with him doing the Jit that was on our building. Um, you have you know, cyclists that all decorate their bikes and drive through town. There is things on the library, the science center, the symphony has a concert that they, that is um, presented out on their wall so people don't even have to go into the thing, to the concert. On seniors' buildings, there's, I mean, everything. So people starting to connect to find ways to work together to, and all of this is, you know, is a, a lot of it is storytelling. It's not just art for art's sake. It is storytelling um, through art, and um, and not, you know, it's historical stories. It's all kinds. So I think that we have really, you know, sort of come a long way to start to do that, and probably would do a lot more. Um, the museum has an African World Festival every year. It's 34 years old this year. Um, that used to be downtown and is now right over in the district where, you know, in the culture district where all the museums are. There are 150,000 people over a three-day weekend that come. And, I, you know, I've been really thinking about how to broaden that audience next year and in terms of looking at the artists, especially with 67. Um, uh, the whole, we have this, we unveiled this, this, this sculpture by a 91-year-old artist, Mr. Charles McGee, uh, in July, it's called United We Stand, and that's the, f and you, hopefully you will all see it tonight. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, sort of our first un opening, uh, unveiling piece of our 67 programming. But next year, I'd like to see if we can do more around the African World Festival with the United We Stand, with all different kinds of genres of music, um, that not just the, the genres, but using the music to, um, to, 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 to really look at issues that impacted, that, that's really helped create the whole um, uh, climate, the 67 climate throughout this country, so that we can, you know, like a sweet honey in the rock, like, um, um, who was married to um, uh, the jazz drummer from New York? Um, he had a freedom suite. He was married to Abby Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> can anybody help me? <laughs> He, he was married to Abby Lincoln. He was a drummer, uh, but he did a, an amazing jazz freedom suite. But you know, things. But using the music itself, that where those artists and those individuals looked at what was going on and the issues that we were dealing with, and how they, you know, they used their voice to help introduce this to people. You know, because that's what they they were doing. Just helping people that that like you know, in your book, you were saying that people that didn't live near. Um, the, the neighborhoods, and they, they, they had no idea the, 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 the fact that people were being kept out of neighborhoods, and they had, so these people helped create work that brought this to everybody's attention. And so we want to start, you know, we're looking at doing something like that to sort of get people that say they're not interested in history, so, you know, they exist by the thousands. Um, <laughs> to really start to get interested in those historical stories. And, uh, and I think that a lot of that is happening in Detroit, and I think that, you know, but we can do a lot more. And that comes from museums. Thank you, Anita. So, okay, so the question is how can museums be a bridge between, you know, the hipsterified 
areas like Midtown and Downtown and our neighborhood communities. Um, my thoughts on this is, obviously I'm not an expert because I'm learning. Um, it's one of the reasons why I come to conferences like this one, and this one in particular has so many great sessions on dealing with difficult histories and diversity and inclusion, and so that's really exciting for me. But I will tell you, uh, for the Detroit Historical Society, we, do, we have put together some strategies on um, how to do this, and we've kind of identified as part of the 67 project three kind of, we call them our three gaps that we're trying to help. Um, heal, begin dialogues with, and it's generational gaps, racial gaps, and geographical gaps. Now clearly there's overlaps between all three of those, but that's kind of, kind of a foundation we keep in. And in how we're going about going from this you know, ivory tower, if you will, in Midtown to being a more relevant um, community organization is number one, we started with community partnerships, as I mentioned, starting to talk to the people who are doing the work that we wanna do, learning from them, collaborating with them, um, number two, we just we started just to you know pull up our bootstraps and go out into these communities and take the flack, you know that we you know if if we need to. Unfortunately, um, I will say this for Detroiters: it, my experience is very little people have been angry at us. They've been glad that we finally are asking, um, which has been wonderful, and they've been treating us with a. Uh, wonderful generosity that I'm not sure, quite sure that we have, uh, that we deserve, but that's how great Detroiters are. Um, so, you know, and, and uh, I think the foundation is you can't make this change overnight. You've got to build the trust and you've got to build the relationships, and that means taking the time to do it, right? So, although we are less than a year out from the significant anniversary, um, this is a marathon for us, not a sprint. So um, we are really looking forward to investing in the changes to make it sure that we are dealing with the community. Oh, the last thing I wanna say, and this is an interesting um, personal journey that I'm on is, you know, as a trained historian, you know, in a lot of ways we're trained that you can get down to the data and the facts will tell the story themselves. But when you embark in a, in a, a comprehensive oral history project, you cannot, view oral histories through that, is this true or is this not true? That becomes an in, completely invalid um, way to, to see these histories. So one of the th ways that we're changing, instead of being, well, we're the experts and we're gonna put the facts on the wall, move to what's more important isn't so much what, uh, what is the truth and what people are telling, it's how people interpreted what happened to them and how it impacted their perspective and what went on. I have done back-to-back -back oral histories with, with two different folks who were at the same historical event and have 180 degree views on what that happened. And you know what? They're both 100% accurate. So that's been an interesting, from a curatorial historical uh, journey that we're on, is learning how to um, meet people where they are and value and respect their point of view and their history as truth. So, as you imagine, when you're putting together uh, the seminal history exhibition on what happened in July 1967, that can raise some challenges for those of us who are traditionally, you know, um, working with doing exhibitions that are scholarly and authoritative. So we um, are doing a lot of, using a lot of the techniques that you know, Tom mentioned that New York's doing is making sure that we are highlighting these multiple perspectives and giving opportunities for people to access this story and the information, And because the, there are facts and, and things, although I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist now, so now I say there are 43 officially recorded deaths because I have, we have some stories in our oral history archives that will chill your blood.
about how the death toll was significantly underreported. But again, that's I, I can't vouch for that. But but so now I say officially recorded. This. But it's, it's so those are the things that you know um, I'm finding it very rich and rewarding to do that, and that that requires as us as experts and as historians and scholars to, to have a little humility. It's the only way to do this and to, to build that trust and have integrity with the communities you're trying to serve. So that's what I've learned thus far. Are there now, are there discussions now or have there um, been discussions ongoing about installing a marker for the 67 riots? Yes, there is, and Juanita, I know Juanita and the right, you guys are involved in this. Um, the exciting thing about Detroit is um, we are a grassroots town. We're not the kind of people that are going to be like, ah, oh, you know, this kind of stinks, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So um, fortunately, um, the way things are moving, um, there are enough people in the dialogue so that when we hear that things are going on, we can band together. So there is a group of five or six, maybe even seven different nonprofits, activist groups, cultural organizations that are really focusing this year on Gordon Park, which is the um, park that now sits at the site of Rosa Parks and Claremont, or 12th and Claremont, um, where there is no historical marker. There is an amazing mid-century sculpture that's very angular um, that's there that was put as a memorial, but there's no interpretation, so you have no idea what it's for. Um, but this group, this collaborative, is all coming together. Um, every group has its own idea of what they want to do, but we're all finally having a dialogue together instead of all of us working independently and we're starting to come together. So one of the things on the table is definitely doing historic markers um, in that space as well as other, a statuary, turning part of it into an amphitheater so public programs and, and information can go there. So, so yes, there's a lot in the works. One really interesting example of how to do this came from um, Philadelphia, um, uh, a public historian, then a high school teacher, now works for a documentary film company um, named Amy Cohen, who taught uh, high school history in one of Philadelphia's high schools. And there's a required African-American history course that all Philadelphia public high school students need to take. Uh, and she had them doing uh, nominations for hi historic sites uh, to the to the state to get to get markers uh, places that they read about they did research on um, a riot led by whites against African Americans on Lombard Street in 1837 uh, whites uh, opposed to the celebration of uh, the anniversary of the freedom of Haiti uh, uh, turned into a bloodbath uh, nobody knew about it. They worked on it, they put a marker up. They did another project in collaboration with um, former black power activists to um, mark the um, Ife Ile Center in North Philadelphia, which was one of the major centers of the black arts movement. And now there's a plaque there. Ife Ile Center is long gone, but the plaque is there. So she and her students nominated any number of places around the, uh, around the city. And in the process, they learned history. Um, and in the process, generations of folks who walked down Lombard Street and, and Six uh, can now uh, learn about the Lombard Street riot. Thank you. To um, go up a little bit to a higher altitude, I want to talk about the assumption that I think many of us have that that history is a tool. History is um, having a shared understanding of what happened to us, uh, of where we've been, of who we are, is really fundamentally important to making really good decisions about where we want to go. 
um, might not have common agreement, but knowing, knowing the past, knowing where we've been helps inform our choices. So when you look at the work that's being done in an academic setting, work that's being done in, in a public museum setting, in all of our communities, and then you look at the decision makers, and we'd start with voters, start with community uh, members, community leaders, educators, uh, uh, business leaders, elected officials, city planners, are, is the work that we are doing as a field, is the work that we're doing as academic historians, the work that we are doing as public historians, how much of an impact does that have, can that have, should that have? It's a big question. I would open it up to the, to the audience as well. You might have to shout a lot because there's, ma'am. Yeah, actually, would you want to hand the mic? You may need to come up. Now this will go down on your permanent record. Oh, no, okay. So what's, what's discouraging so many times is that some of these great projects either don't get the support that they, the recognition that they, they deserve from elected officials, school officials, the public at large, and that often doesn't then translate into the monetary support that allows that work to continue. I'm thinking about the New Jersey Historical Society project that you mentioned. I happen to know that's the last new exhibit that they've been able to mount there, and that was, what, 20, 2007? And uh, about a year or so later, the society virtually collapsed because of a variety of, of uh, of uh, factors, but it was financial in large part. So that's my, my question. How do we how do we garner the support for this kind of work that A, elevates it to a greater prominence in the public discourse, and B, results in financial support that allows it to continue? I, I think one thing is that the partnerships, the partnerships are really, really, really important, important because um, with this, um, this whole 67 piece, Detroit 67, is um, you have the Historical Museum, you have the Charles Wright Museum, you have, and she started to talk about all of the, you have the DIA, you have um, the, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, you have um, Science Center, you have, I mean, you, you have all of these layers of, of large and small that's participating in this in this, in this whole event, in this program. So to get citywide support uh, and different partnerships um, in, in, to participate in this, I think that, and I think you have to be careful about the partnerships piece too, because it is, it, it really is all about fundraising to get these projects done. And, um, and so you have to be careful that when people support one entity, that they don't think that they, just because I say I'm partnering with blah, 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 and I'm funding, and I, I'm not giving that money to them, I'm doing the program. So you, you do have to be careful about it so that you don't end up in the end having a bunch of people really upset uh, because they were, they were partners and they felt like you raised a bunch of money and you didn't get the they didn't get the money. I think in Detroit, we are very, very fortunate, and, uh, and, and, and I know you guys got this, so I'm gonna say it too. The, the Knight Foundation 
um, has decided to, there are so many different things going on in Detroit around um, uh, 67. And they have what we, we have here called the Nice Arts Challenge, and they have it in eight cities around the country, which um, anybody, any artist, any individual, any organization, you don't have to be a nonprofit, you don't have to, you can submit an idea and a concept for how to use arts to change the city. And you can, it's, com, it's competitive, but you can get funding. And there were so many of these projects in the last, the, the, the current Nice Arts Challenge, 67 pieces, that they decided that they would pull 67 out in Detroit for a special initiative. And I think there are going to be eight or nine organizations that will get specific funding for 67, pro, for, to do 67, pro, their 67 projects. And I know you're one of them, and I know we're one of them. Um, and there are others as well. So, you know, we were very fortunate to be able to get this kind of funding and have the Knight Foundation step up to be able to support the work that we're doing around this. But I think that that would not have happened had there not been so many partners involved and so many organizations participating. They would not have felt, they would have felt like they could have, fund, they could have funded, you know, the four or five ideas that were, that were in the, the challenge and just be done with it. But because it was so pervasive, there were so many partnerships, and, 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 and we were really talking about it and being very public about the partnerships, I think that really helped solidify funding. Yes, I agree. And I think, you know, um, there are other foundations, national foundations, that are really stepping up and taking a stand and devoting a significant amount of their resources to racial and economic equity work. Among them are the Kellogg Foundation, um, which has been doing this type of work for 30, year, 40 years. Um, and the Ford Foundation, the current uh, director of the Ford Foundation in New York City, has um, announced that they're going to be prioritizing funding in these social justice issues, which makes it easier. Um, I will say, from my stand, one of the challenges, and this isn't directly related to the question, but it is kind of overarching, is, um, and another thing that comes when you are an organization of, your, of our age, where the significant number of our donors or members are folks that are of older generations, to generalize, I'll own this generalization, because so, I know it's on my permanent record, um, that may not, and I know this for a fact, may not be super comfortable with the direction that we're going in. And they have been our significant pot of major gifts and uh, individual donors. So how do you find a way as an institution to make the significant transformational change you need to do to be doing good work in our field, but bring those along with us who may have really liked the way it was? Um, and I, the reason why I know this is we did a strategic planning process about two years ago where we did a very broad um, member survey. And um, some of the, the, you know, the, we like it, bring back the evening lectures and bring back the, you know, things that we had moved on from. So, uh, so, so that's an important audience as well, not only financially, but these have been our supporters for long. So how do you effectively change manage? The ramifications of doing a project this big are sometimes bigger than you initially anticipate, so it's important to keep all these factors in mind. I will answer this shortly and humbly in the presence of two museum professionals, um, but I was, um, I've seen two different examples of 
folks adapting to and, and ways to respond to your question. Um, I was on the board of directors for the Historical Society of Pennsylvania for 10 years, 10 important years, including the merger of the HSP uh, with the Balch Institute for Ethnic Studies, which was uh, created in the 1970s. The HSP goes back to the first quarter of the 19th century. Um, and uh, there were all of those issues of um, different constituencies, different funders. You know, you went from having funders who were mostly the descendants of old money Philadelphia families to having folks who came from new money and, and often relatively recent immigrant groups um, and interesting cultural clashes there. But one way that the HSP tried to maintain its old constituency but also reach out to new were things like creating something called the Treasure Society, um, where donors, many of them from the older generation, would be taken back into the archives and get to you know, see some of the valuable documents, a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, for example. Actually, the HSB had two of them. Um, uh, uh, and, and on the other hand, also reaching out to communities um, that were constituents of the museum who had been undertapped or never tapped at all, for example, the largest immigrant population in metropolitan Philadelphia are subcontinental Indians. Um, many of them come to work in the engineering and pharmaceutical and biomed industries in the region. Many of them have lots of money. Um, the Balch Institute had ethnicity and immigration as its major theme. Well, hey, let's start doing some collecting and some programming of stuff with the Indian American experience and in the process reach out and cultivate donors who the old HSP never touched, uh, never went near, um, who had never heard of the HSP. A another very different set of examples comes from um, the Pew Charitable Trust's um, efforts to try to deal with the ridiculous number of competing, overlapping, duplicative, small um, uh, uh, house museums, historical museums, historical societies in the greater Philadelphia area, somewhere in the ballpark of 400. Um, you'd have historic houses that were run by octogenarians who you know could open every Tuesday from two to five and and the third Saturday of the month uh, you know um, in, in the afternoons um, places that just simply aren't viable standing on their own and there are treasures and that are wonderful and so Pew encouraged and 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 obviously met, met with some significant resistance but encouraged um, collaboration partnerships even the merging of um, of some of these institutions as a way to allow them to put their resources together collectively so that they could remain viable over time. Um, and those are really, really hard, as a Philadelphia example showed, but can also, in the case of Germantown that I mentioned earlier, um, can yield some real successes. There's now a coalition of a dozen or more um, uh, historic associations, house museums, et cetera, in Germantown, and they are doing programming together, they're doing advertising together. Um, they can do a lot more collectively than any of them could individually, especially the smaller underfunded ones. Has the, in, in, in your opinion, Dr. Sugru, has, have the decision makers, the planners, the leaders, uh, the community of Detroit and greater Detroit, have they learned uh, the lessons that you've been documenting. Are we making good? Are they making good decisions for what's going well and what's not? Oh, Everyone really, on the panel is laughing. That's a, a giant we'll question. That the record. That's a giant question. What I will say is that as a historian, I feel and who's written about Detroit, um, I feel compelled to take every pulpit, every mountaintop to stand upon to shout out my story because some lessons need to be taught more than once. Um, 
Uh, so when Detroit went through its bankruptcy in 2013, I pledged, despite the fact that I had other things to do with my life, that I would answer every single last media query, major or minor, about Detroit and about its bankruptcy. Um, and I spent most of July and August of, of 2013 talking to media from around America and around the world uh, because most of the media coverage on Detroit was bad. Even in places you think it would be good, the New York Times coverage of Detroit is mostly abysmal. Um, the Economist, uh, you know, which which has very good coverage of some things, was was full of cliches. It was it was it was a central casting list of Detroit cliches that I had debunked in my work. So, the reality is, for those of you interpreting history uh, in, in your profession, for me interpreting in my profession, we do spend a lot of time howling into the void, hoping that um, people will listen to us uh, and. And the only thing I can say is we just have to keep doing it again and again and again. So has it worked? I got a lot of media inquiries in 2013 about, the, about Detroit and about the Detroit bankruptcy. Um, I, was in, I was invited that year to keynote a group of community activists um, to be the headliner for the Greater Detroit Regional Chamber of Commerce. Uh, people who had never much paid, with all due respect, much heed to my work. Uh, and I spoke to almost a thousand people um, at that conference and got a lot of interesting feedback and did a lot of media around that. And so my, my, my lesson in that isn't to toot my own horn, but rather to say that when we're doing important work, Detroit 1967, the African-American experience from prehistory to the present, um, the history and contemporary prospects of Detroit, um, we, we should not be ashamed about continuing to shout it loud uh, with hopes that eventually it will stick because if we don't, Who's going to? I, I think that it absolutely has. Um, it, I don't. It, it has caught attention. I was at um, a dinner last night with the the, the Kresge board is in town, and um, there was a um, they are having new direction. They're going to be looking at neighborhoods in Detroit and 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 um, and trying to encourage other foundations to join them. And as I um, listen to some of their sort of key areas, it is clear that somebody has listened, listened to, you know, at least read your work because um, I think that they are looking at how to redo neighborhoods and spend some energy and time into uh, revitalizing neighborhoods and, and, and moving uh, understanding that justice can't just be midtown, the cultural district, downtown, and that a lot of work has to be done in the neighborhoods, and that um, and a lot of that work really is about housing and economic development and 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 um, education, and so that had not been the case. You know, we we really have spent a lot of time really getting that whole economic in engine of. Of, of downtown going and businesses going, but now they are really, they're changing direction, concentrating in the neighborhoods. And so I think that a lot of that has to. I'd say one of the coolest uh, events that I have done was speaking to the Ford Foundation's board of directors. The Ford Foundation, founded here in Detroit um, by the great Otto Mogul and his heirs, um, uh, moved in 1948, uh, 47 or 48 from Detroit to New York City. Uh, and essentially never looked back uh, until quite recently. Um, 
And so this past year, a year ago, June, uh, the Ford Foundation had its first board meeting in Detroit since the 1940s. Uh, and uh, um, it, 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 it's a reminder of the importance of trying to put the word out um, to as many different constituencies as possible. And it was pretty powerful that Ford decided to meet here. And uh, um, I and, and uh, a, a Detroit um, activist gave them a bus tour of Detroit. And we didn't do the greatest hits. You know, we didn't, we, we, yes, we did drive by, you know, some cool new buildings downtown, but we, we went out into the neighborhoods. We went all the way up the east side. And, uh, and, and for many of these board members, um, who, like us, we pop into a city, we go out to its good restaurants, we hang out in its hotels, uh, we, we hear a good, go to a good bar or music place. Um, they didn't see, they hadn't, many of them have never been in Detroit, but those who had hadn't seen much. And so it, I think it's really important to try to expand people's horizons in thinking about cities. The president of the Ford Foundation and a board member were with the group last night, so see what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to hit him up for yeah. money. Yeah. <laughs> No, wait, get in line. We're first. <laughs> um, I guess I'll just add to that real quick. I'm sorry. Did he say something? We've asked him to speak. Ah. We've asked him to, we, asked him to speak. Wonderful. Um, uh, the only thing I, I will add to has Detroit learned its lessons, and I, I do share the optimism that Juanita shared that... Um, policymakers, the folks, a lot of the folks that attended the conference that Tom spoke at, the, the regional chamber, are a lot of, uh, in addition to being businesses, are a lot of policymakers in um, our community. And they are beginning to have a dialogue about neighborhoods at a level that they have never done before. And I think a lot of us um, with the historians are kind of hanging on with bated breath, waiting to see if this can get a little deeper than just the surface nod, well, yeah, we got to do something for the neighborhoods, you know, and are they going to do it right? Are they going to actually go and talk to the people in the neighborhoods? Are they going to power the people in the neighborhoods? So um, I, I, I think now more than ever, the, the, you know, key leadership is starting to talk about it because for folks like Juanita and Tom here who have been beating that drum for so many years, um, but I think the jury's still out on what the long-term implication is going to be with this rebirth. But we're, we're optimistic. We're Detroiters. That's the way we are. But see, I think that that's where museums can play a role because I think that we have those public conversations and we, Im we invite people and we have to insist that, 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 the, that, that those conversations be included and that they listen and that they participate and they attend or that they even, in, you know, that they, they, um, they, they support our ability to hold those conversations and invite the, the, the public. Exactly. We're going to, I know there are a couple of questions from the floor. We can take those. Because this session is being recorded, though, you're going to have to come up and, and uh, grab a mic. So it's not for the faint of heart. This is an interactive audience. Hello, I'm uh, Brent Glass from uh, Washington, D.C. Um, hello. Um, and if this question was asked before, I came in late, so I'm sorry. But when I heard your talk uh, this morning, uh, um, Tom, um, Jane Jacobs uh, is the patron saint of urbanism. Um, have you invoked her name at all, and should we all be less, the lessons learned uh, from her book 1961, that's more than 50 years ago, 
it just seemed to me as, as you were talking, so many of those same points about neighborhoods, about density, about watching people, how they use cities, um, is that still worthwhile to look at what she has, she's almost reached the point of sainthood, I think, and among many, she'd revolutionized the, the whole city planning field. Is it still relevant? Um, many of you probably know Jane Jacobs's book, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, which was published in the early 1960s and drew heavily from her experience um, living in Greenwich Village in New York and being spearheading the resistance to build a massive crosstown highway that would have blasted through that historic fabric uh, for the sake of the automobile. Um, it was stopped. Um, but Jacobs um, had some key concepts about density, um, about what she called eyes on the street, about the dance of pedestrians on the sidewalks, you know, the, the, the vitality of, of pedestrian-oriented cities. And many of her concepts had become, I would say, canonical in um, urban redevelopment. Um, and all for the better. Um, cities are much more interesting um, places and I think have a lot more um, viability over time when they're, when people can walk on the streets day and night when they feel safe, where there's density, where there's lots to see and do. Um, you know, I'd say, though, that Jane Jacobs had a really big blind spot that everybody of her stature um, and her politics um, and her race had in the early 1960s, which is she wrote very little about the fact that New York was then and still is one of the most racially segregated metropolitan areas in the United States. And to address questions of urban viability and livability requires um, putting those questions of racial and spatialized inequity and injustice in the middle. It's, it's not just a peripheral thing. It really has to be central for how we plan our future cities. And I would say the lessons of making the streets like Greenwich Village, I mean, Jane Jacobs' own Greenwich Village, it's a, it's a fabulous place for, for people like me, you know, who now live there part-time, who I, I walk around, I'm, I'm constantly amused and entertained, there are amazing stores, I have the best meals ever, but, but is that helping um, new immigrants who have just arrived in New York from the Dominican Republic? Does it make a difference for the people who are living now two to three hours outside of New York and commuting in every day to um, low-income, you know, often minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage jobs because they can't afford to live there anymore? No. So in other words, Jacobs, Jacobs takes us down one road that's a, a good one, but it's far from sufficient. Good question. And uh, anyone else have a question from the floor at this moment? Moment? Okay. Yeah. We're going to make it hard on you. I just wanted to say, because we were talking about lessons learned from the bankruptcy, and uh, I'm an oral historian for the federal court, and I just finished 10 hours of interview a while back with Chief Judge Rosen, who led the mediation for the bankruptcy. And I think, um, and I hope the citizens learned as well, but I know the policymakers learned that talking to each other and leaving aside all of the long history of this city, um, of people being apart, and being willing to compromise brought 
a lot of problems to solutions, or at least temporary solutions. Now, we have to carry on, and it's really important, and I, this is not so much as a, a question, this is obviously a comment. We have Judge Rhodes now, who's head of the Detroit School Problems, and, but I think people came together and realized that we were on the brink, and there wasn't any way out except to talk to each other. And I hope that a lot of people are listening in the city because that's what's important for the neighborhoods as well as the downtown. Thank you. Um, I should say I'm involved right now in um, a perspective documentary film project that I'm um, co-producing with um, a filmmaker who is a former expert in municipal finance uh, and, uh, um, and, and it, it, he brings the business finance side to the table. Um, I bring the Detroit history side to the table. Um, we've made contacts with all these folks uh, with, with Judge Rhodes and, and Judge Rosen and many of the key players. And one of the most fascinating parts about the Detroit bankruptcy and why the story is so compelling is how you have all these incredibly um, strong, willed, well-organized constituents who have to fight it out, the pensioners and the municipal employees unions, the um, the the insurers and the banks who had um, made the fairly dubious uh, um, deals in Detroit, um, the, uh, the city government itself having to provide services when it can't. I mean, and so it's actually an incredibly dramatic and important story. And uh, well, we'll be in touch uh, about, about your oral histories. <laughs> I have a, a, another question from the audience and I'll we'll probably end with this one in the interest of time unless um, you storm the gate and grab the microphone. But uh, this gets into some, uh, some of the things you mentioned in the, in the talk and, and maybe may more at a tactical level of whom, to whom we are speaking. Uh, this question is how can we leverage the hipster enthusiasm for museums and culture into meaningful knowledge and understanding of Detroit's past? How do we foster a sense of responsibility for Detroit's difficult history? <laughs> so the answer is clear. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to say, you know, he was talking about how the New York Times, when they first started covering the bankruptcy, was, you know, cliches and negative, negative, negative. Now the New York Times loves the hipsterification of Detroit. So if you read it, you will read all about Gold Cash Gold and, and uh, Slow's Barbecue, which may finally not be New York Times anymore. But um, I think, you know, it's so, always so fun um, because I'm Generation X. It's a lot of fun to, you know, always pick on the next generation behind you and the millennials and the folks, the, the, the demographic that we talk about in statistics that are moving back into cities and things like that. I find, you know, in my personal experience, because I certainly haven't done a ton of, a lot of research into this, that these these are people who are really engaged in the arts and cultures in the city. And while they, you know write free press articles about their complaints that they have no local recycling place to return their craft beer cans to within walking distance, um, which again, really easy to make fun of. Um, they are such a vital part of this community now. So they are also a valid perspective and a valid voice. And I think again, as Juanita has said several times, that's where we come in 
as museums is we do the programming that appeals to different demographics and we start these broader conversations. And if there's one thing I can say about the young um, hipsters in Detroit is that they really, really, really want to talk and they really, really, really want to learn. So, I mean, as a museum, I, 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 couldn't, ask for, <laughs> I couldn't ask for more, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's my take. Um, okay, as an older person, uh, <laughs> not either of those that she mentioned. Um, I, I think that um, it is important to embrace everybody, but it, also, it is also important to um, um, sort of insist on a standard, uh, if you will. By that I mean, um, you know, everybody comes with their own ideas and their, their way of doing things, and I think you, you embrace that, but you also make sure that you are not throwing away what has always been. And that's easy to do when you start to look at the new hipster culture that comes in and the next newest thing, and it's, you know, it's easy to sort of throw away um, things that's been in place and you've depended on, and by, I should say not things, people, more importantly, people that you've depended on and that's been in place and that's been working hard through the bankruptcy and before the bankruptcy and, you know, withstood it all and they're still here and they are, you know, and, and, and sometimes you can, you know, with the, with, the, with the shiny new thing glowing in your eye, you can quickly forget them and forget what they've done and what they're trying to accomplish. So I think that that's also a challenge for all of us, not to look past those stand-up bearers. Um, and even some of them are, you know, the young people. They've just been at it for a long time. And um, because the thing that I admire so much about Detroit is that um, people have always find a way to survive, and they survive in the most incredible creative ways. Uh, Detroit has more entrepreneurs than any place I've ever seen in my life um, because they are constantly creating something and some way of doing things. And, and when um, with, with the, the sort of more established kinds of stuff, and it's established in not the traditional ways, but people coming in with resources and sometimes with just a new great way of looking at things, we, I think that it is our role to try to figure out how do we sort of bring all of that together and not make sure that you end up you know, leaving out something and created, creating bitterness and people feeling left out. I think that we have to find a way to make sure that we're sort of inviting it all in and everybody in and having something fantastic. So, because we can quickly, easily do that. Um, so, let me offer both a warning and a note of optimism. Um, uh, the, the Detroit's appeal among, quote, hipsters, young people, cre art, art, artists, people who ride bikes, um, who want, want urban life again, is a good thing. Um, that is, um, we want a diverse, vibrant urban life. 
Um, and I have seen much evidence of that in my visits to Detroit in recent years. Um, and many of the younger folks who are moving into Detroit are here because they're really committed to cities, because they um, want to make a difference, because they have a kind of a, uh, a, an optimism about the possibility of change. The warning part is that, that I've also heard and seen a lot of folks who believe that uh, in an almost messianic way that they are going to be the agents of change, that they alone have the key to transform and save the city. Um, and so that's one of my warnings. Um, that is, I, I, I think there has to be a lot of openness and listening, and I think museums and, and historic sites um, can really play a critical role in bringing people together to have discussion and dialogue about these kinds of issues rather than talking past each other. I'd say one other um, area where um, I would, I would have some misgivings or concerns, um, and some of you may have read Mark Benelli's book, Detroit City is the Place to Be. He's a journalist, um, he's written for Rolling Stone, he's a really good writer, um, and he interviews some of these folks. And you have people using language like, it's a frontier, or we're pioneers, or the city's empty, we can do whatever we want. It's a do-it-yourself city. And I say, all right, well, there are like 15,000 of you but there are 630,000 African Americans, mostly working, uh, poor working class and lower middle class who are living in Detroit. And it, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a frontier. Um, it's, a, it's a big city. Um, it's a big city with a lot of people in it and a lot of problems. And um, to think somehow that you can do it yourself um, is to, I think, miss one of the most important challenges and possibilities of living in a city like Detroit, which is that collaboration, cooperation, dialogue, um, difficult discussions, compromise, um, uh, deal-making are the future of the city of Detroit, not coming in, opening up some pop-up businesses, and patting yourself on the back for being a great urbanite, um, and um, not just simply having a great time with the wonderful and abundant aesthetic pleasures of the city, but thinking in the long term. How can I both have a great meal and think about um, building a vital economy that pays people a living wage? Yeah. I, thank you. At the risk of blowing that eloquent ending, I'd like to, uh, I want to, I mentioned in the introduction that I had the privilege of working in this area for about a decade and got a, a taste uh, of what of what we've been talking about now five years removed I, I was legitimately inspired by the work the your academic work the work that you did dr. Sugru I am continue to be inspired by uh, by the work of both of your institutions and other institutions in Detroit who are trying to grapple with this problem be relevant to the conversation uh, I want to um, wish you a happy conference the rest of the week but I want you to join me in thanking these history leaders who are lighting candles instead of cursing the darkness. Thank you. I think I see a colleague out there from Cranbrook. Did I see a colleague from Cranbrook? So we've been talking about partnerships, and um, Cranbrook is, uh, I would say, not just Cranbrook, you have been an incredible partner. So I'd like to just publicly say that and say thank you.